2: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And
0: I'm Mala. We're the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying A, a podcast. podcast.
3: Welcome to Locatora Radio, season nine. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a
0: new sound.
3: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27 and he lived a life that defied categorization. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Five would be one of the two numbers in a given ratio. You know, five to one, baby, one in five. No one here gets out alive. Another five would be the number of studio albums he had released with The Doors by 1970. They came at a strong clip. The gap between that run and their final record, LA Woman, would be the longest in their short career. One would be the number of cult leaders that Jim, his doppelganger Jimbo, would be mistaken for when he was found passed out on someone's doorstep. Two more would be the number of slices on his wrist and forearm that he endured during a wicked marriage ceremony, surrounded by a few strangers, candles, and ritualistic jetsam. Another four would be the number of credence Clearwater Revival band members who would welcome him as one of their own when Jim fantasized himself away from the reality of living behind bars. And ten would be the number of months he'd have left to live after a Miami jury reached its verdict and decided the fate of one of the biggest rock stars in the world. On this, our eighth episode of Season 2, Doppelgangers, Wicked Marriage Ceremonies, Chuglin, and Jim Morrison, Lost in Fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Eleanor brow had never seen anything like it before. She'd never seen a man passed out on her doorstep before. In her 68 years on this planet, and all the time spent at her home in West Los Angeles, she'd never walked outside on a warm August morning, the rising sun splintering through the patterns of palm trees to find an unconscious bearded man blocking her path to her newspaper. Bloody red sun of fantastic LA. The Times was there. On the lowest and final step of her stoop, it was all she wanted that morning. The paper and her coffee, a cigarette or two, in silence. She could hear the kitchen radio from inside, talking about street riots in Ireland, talking about traffic in L.A. She wanted that newspaper, but it was on the lowest and final step, beyond the man who was curled up, snoring, rank, a derelict, perhaps. Some homeless man who had wandered well beyond the reaches of downtown L.A., Eleanor stretched out her left leg and jabbed her foot into the sleeping man's side. He rustled, rolled onto his back. His eyes flickered open, bloodshot and dull, empty, dark, and uncaring. Completely unbothered, completely unaware. What if he was more than a derelict, Eleanor thought? More than an annoyance? What if he was a member of that family? The Manson family? It had been almost a year since the Manson family sent bad vibrations through Los Angeles through the country, through the entire world. Almost a year since they walked into houses and murdered innocent people with steak knives and bayonets. Murdered that pregnant actress in the coldest of cold blood. Almost a year since Death to Pigs and Helter Skelter were written in blood on living room walls and refrigerator doors. And despite the passing of time, the murders hung over LA like psychological smog, the cellular memory of a metropolis, a nightmare that couldn't be shaken away couldn't be hustled off a doorstep. It had been almost a year, but Eleanor thought, what if? What if they didn't catch them all? What if one of them escaped? What if there are others, new family members, who are carrying the torch? She looked down at the bearded vagrant waking up on her West LA doorstep, and she was convinced. She had a Manson acolyte at her feet, a devotee of fear and chaos and evil, obstructing her path to her morning paper. Eleanor ran back inside, locked the front door, snapped the radio off, picked the phone receiver up from its cradle on the wall, and called the police. She was one of the lucky ones. She knew it. She was spared. And others would be spared as well. When the LAPD arrived, they didn't find a Manson family member or even a Manson family wannabe, but they did find a familiar face on Eleanor's steps. Jim Morrison's pal, Jimbo. The cops knew Jimbo by sight, knew Jimbo by sound, knew Jimbo by smell. They didn't know his full name, didn't even know if Jimbo was his real name The cops also didn't know that Jimbo had spent some time hanging with Charlie Manson, a wizard. Cracking open brewskis, catching doors rehearsals, scoping chicks. I'm a girl watcher, the wizard would sing under his breath to Jimbo, and Jimbo would giggle. Eleanor Brown wasn't all that far off. Jimbo never carried any ID. Sometimes he had shoes on and other times he couldn't be bothered to lace up. He was always in need of a cold shower, black coffee, a swift smack upside the head. The cops booked Jimbo the next day. The Doors manager Bill Siddons posted his $25 bail and Jimbo was free again. Now that the idealism of the 60s had been replaced by the nihilism of a new, less naive decade, Jimbo was spending less time in the shadows, less time in the background. He had been calling out the flower children on their bullshit since the human being, if not earlier, and now that his insults were everyone else's reality, he felt welcome. So welcome that he would sometimes take Jim's place at parties and no one was the wiser. Jim had grown his beard out, which made his already striking resemblance to Jimbo even more striking. They both hid behind a bushy mass of unkempt facial hair, hair grown out and wavy, paunch getting paunchier. Jimbo could so easily pose for Jim that no one was the wiser when he showed up at Amon Erdogan's house party in Jim's place. This was early the following year, in 1971, and Ahmed and his fancy guests were watching Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell walk on the moon on a small TV set in the living room. He had invited Jim in order to coax him and the doors away from Elektra to Atlantic Records, the label he had founded in 1949 with 10 grand from his dentist and had since built into the preeminent R&B, soul, jazz, and rock record label. Atlantic had Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin, Coltrane, Mingus, and Renek Pullman, Buffalo Springfield, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Ahmed had just pulled a similar move with the Rolling Stones. He invited Mick Jagger to a party and in that smooth-talking son-of-a-Turkish diplomat way, made the Stones an Atlantic Records band with a $1 million advance. But Jimbo didn't want to talk business, didn't want to talk about record deals and advances and royalties. Jimbo wanted to drink scotch. Jimbo wanted to make a scene, wanted to tear a ragged edge into the sophisticated party's cheeky scene. Jimbo stood up on the couch, much to Ahmed's chagrin. He was wearing shoes that night. And Jimbo stomped on the couch, bounced up and down, emulating the bouncing moonwalks of Shepard and Mitchell on the TV screen scotch and ice in his tumbler splashing around and dropping onto the couch's spotless leather Fuck the
0: capitalist pigs They're already gone
4: jimbo yelled breaching the acceptable din of the genteel house party atmosphere he bounced on the couch his boot heels twisting into the expensive leather he reached out for the magritte paintings that hung on the nearby wall and attempted to knock them down his fingers clipped a frame and a painting swung precariously
0: I've been down so goddamn long that it looks like up to me, motherfuckers.
4: Ahmed stood silent as if silence would help end Jimbo's rant sooner.
0: You capitalist pigs holding art hostage. Greedy fucking pigs. The artists will win. Eddie gone. The artists will have the last laugh.
4: Jim and Pam were fighting again. Dishes flew across the kitchen. Pots and pans were volleyed when hurtful words weren't enough. When the cupboards were emptied, they went for the kitchen drawers. The cutlery came out. Now they were fighting to be heard above the clank and clatter of stainless steel tumbling to the floor. Just like the last time they fought, these two hot and cold, on-again-off-again life partners parted ways in a huff. A tiff, then a huff, and neither of them seeing the situation from the other's perspective. When Pam got angry at Jim, she'd call up Jim's limo driver and get the royal Rockstar girlfriend treatment. The driver would pull the car around, smile, and say hello, open the door for her, shut it once she climbed inside, chauffeur her around L.A. when she shot till she dropped, and Jim would go off and find another girl to occupy his time. He knew it bugged the shit out of Pam, as it should, and part of his desire to get some strange was so Pam would bristle. He'd find a groupie, a fan, a friend, a friend of a friend. and The stranger, the better. This time, he wanted to take it even further, that maybe this would be the time he'd leave Pam forever. Maybe he wasn't meant to keep crawling back to her. Life was short, too short, to be lived angry and throwing dinnerware around the kitchen. It was this thinking that led to where he was standing now, in Patricia Keneally's New York apartment, where he was sliced on his wrist and forearm and was married in a Wiccan wedding ceremony. Jim had met Patricia, an editor for Jazz and Pop magazine the previous year when she interviewed him for a feature. She told him she was a witch, and in that moment, she had him. Interest peaked, sights set. From then, the two kept in touch. Recently on tour with The Doors, Jim had split his downtime in the city between Pam's hotel room and Patricia's apartment. The plot thickened. Patricia was tight with the high priestess of the coven. Wiccans, not Satanists, mind you. Dirt worshippers, earthers, disciples of the Great Mother, the matriarch of all humanity and all life. The high priestess could bind the two of them for all eternity, a hand-fasting ceremony. They wouldn't need to file paperwork at City Hall, wouldn't need to stand in a church surrounded by family members they hadn't seen since grade school. All they needed were candles, the high priestess, and their own blood. They'd slice their wrists, their forearms. They'd let the blood drip into a cup. They'd drink from it. They'd be bound, wed, in the eyes of the earth. The Great Mother. The first thing Jim thought, standing there in Patricia's candlelit apartment, surrounded by oddly shaped rocks and seashells, animal horns, and dried flowers, was that Pam would flip her wig if she were here. Holy fuck would she lose her shit, he thought. He laughed, and then he looked up into Patricia's eyes. He felt something graze against his arm, and he looked down, blood running from his wrists. The priestess was there to catch it in her spiritual chalice, and the group started an incantation. These are the hands that will work alongside yours as together you build your future. Jim's eyes caught Patricia's again. He reached his hand out to touch hers. You are thus now and forevermore bound to your vow. The room started to go blurry. Jim struggled to make out Patricia only a few feet away from him. He felt the heat from the candles, smelled the scent of Patricia's perfume, the dried flowers, the decaying animal antlers. He couldn't bear to look at his arm again, but he could feel the warm stream of blood running down slow. He thought of the wizard standing there with Jimbo at the door's rehearsal, wearing that sinking grin that seemed to indicate that he knew something Jim didn't. He thought of the housekeeper in Jamaica, thought about how the place went dark, thought about dying and about standing on the precipice, teetering between this life and the unknown. Teetering. The very thought of the word made him think of his mother, telling him not to teeter in his chair as a five-year-old. She said if he teetered that he would fall backwards and the hardwood floor would be a rude awakening for his head. He teetered anyway, and it happened, just like his mother said. He slipped and fell backwards, head, meat floor. His mother said it was God punishing him for not listening. Jim closed his eyes to snub out the blurriness, and when he reopened them, he wasn't there. He was no longer standing in Patricia's candlelit apartment, He was standing on the side of Highway 132, outside Modesto, California. The wind kicked up and blew his long hair across the front of his face. It was wide, open, desolate, the horizon expansive and without promise. Just a never-ending stretch of pavement and muted vegetation. Double lines, no clouds. The stars seemed to be multiplying in the newly darkened night sky. He felt his heart beating in his ears. He thought about Highway, an American pastoral, a short experimental film he shot the year before in the Mojave Desert, a glorified student film posing his high art. In it, he plays a character named Billy, who climbs out of a quarry soaking wet and puts his boots on. In the desert, he flags down a passing car. Standing on the side of Highway 132, the station wagon had already stopped. He didn't have to flag it down. Jim approached the driver's side door. It was rolled down and the driver, a young woman, hung her left arm out into the warm nighttime air. Jim peered inside, saw the toddler sitting in the back seat, saw the woman's protruding belly nestled up against the steering wheel. Jim asked the woman if she was having car trouble. She said she thought one of her rear wheels felt wobbly. It was teetering. Jim said he would check it out. He walked back to the passenger side rear tire and immediately found the loose lug nuts. But instead of tightening them, he made them looser. He clenched his hand around the thick steel and went counterclockwise, lefty-loosey. He would catch the pregnant woman's gaze in her side mirror and give her a thumbs up. She was all set. She'd start to drive away, but the tire would wobble ever more dramatically than before and she pulled back over, just a ways up the road, and Jim would be there ready to intervene, to offer his assistance. He was no longer the hitchhiker in an experimental film. He was the one picking up easy prey, a pregnant mother with her toddler, alone on this never-ending stretch of Highway 132. It didn't get any easier. A few of the faraway stars in the night sky flickered and flashed and made Jim's eyes burn. He blinked four times, each blink an attempt to blot out the brightness to gain the upper hand on sight. He opened his eyes again, and he was back in Patricia's apartment. Patricia stood across from him, holding onto his hands, bloody and trembling. Was Modesto a memory? A premonition? A daydream? A hallucination brought on by drugs? By blood loss? A complete fantasy? Jim started to open his mouth to say something to Patricia repeat a vow to betray the fact that he had just gone to an entirely new geographic location in his head, but he couldn't speak. His heart was still beating in his ears and now he felt it in his arms and in his wrists. He looked down at his wrists, outstretched to lock hands with Patricia. He saw the blood spurting from his arm in the rhythm of his heartbeat. Each thump and red droplets jumped from inside of him and landed on his skin. He looked down at his wrists, his eyes widened and watched the blood go bump, bump, Bump. Four more blinks quicker now than before, and Jim Morrison passed out, teetered. His head hit the hardwood floor. He may have gotten married, but Jim Morrison had no idea what exactly happened in that apartment then. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. I'm
0: Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's
2: just a shame, you know, that they took him from us.
0: Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence including the DNA of a potential killer.
3: Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Myanmar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your
0: name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one
4: murder, but
0: almost a dozen.
4: I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut. And I didn't say anything all these years. I didn't say
0: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx.
4: He pulled the pool cue back slowly and then suddenly thrust it forward. The solid red ball sunk into the corner pocket, just as John Fogerty said it would. He threw out a subtle celebratory fist bump, nothing too flashy, nothing condescending, just a simple acknowledgement of a sweet shot. Fogerty's standard issue dress code, flannel shirt and blue jeans, his everyman outfit that allowed both hippies and rednecks, traditionalists and futurists alike to identify with him struck a funny contrast to the swank penthouse suite at the Fountain Blue on Miami Beach where Creedence Clearwater Revival were stationed while on tour. This is the hotel where Frank Sinatra taped a Welcome Home special for Elvis Presley when he returned from the army. It was the highest rated TV special of 1960. Not for nothing then, Fogarty and the gang called their penthouse digs the Sinatra Suite. Jim Morrison never wanted to not sniff out a good party, had dropped in to hang out when he heard that he and CCR were in the same city at the same time. He let the nub of the joint he was smoking hang from his lips as he clapped his hands together and showed Fogarty some love for sinking the pocket shop. The previous year, 1969, was all about CCR. Three tight, back-to-basics roots rock albums released in just over nine months. A slew of perfect singles, Born on the Bayou, Green River, Bad Moon Rising, Lodi, Down on the Corner, Fortunate Son. In the U.S., they outsold even the Beatles. And they were on tour behind Cosmos Factory, one of the two LPs they'd released in 1970. It was an album that would help them cement a chart record for the most number two hit singles without a number one. A record they still hold to this day. Critics hated them, but that didn't matter. Here they were, in August of 1970. The boys who railed against fortunate sons and were called back home by bullfrogs live in the high life, flanked by spiral staircases and grand pianos and billiard tables, inside their hotel room on a particularly choice stretch of Florida Beach. Born on the bayou, they weren't. But for Jim, it was all good. Jim looked in Fogarty's eyes and saw a fellow fantasy man, just another tall tale-teller, good-time-seeker, another one who had conjured up a fantasy and inserted himself inside of it. The guy's record label was called Fantasy Records for crying out loud. Who knew what Fogarty saw when he looked out his back door? Jim put the joint out in an ashtray and picked up a pool cue. It was his turn. Whatever Fogarty was playing at, he was damn good at cutthroat, and Jim would have to really concentrate to keep up. He could do this all day. Truth be told, Jim would rather take in a penthouse hang session with Willie and the poor boys any day over what he was actually in Miami for. Jim was back in Miami out of obligation. He was there to pay the piper, to answer for his actions, to unwillingly exit his self-constructed fantasy and deal with reality, a reality he had a part in. The obscenity trial was here. He already had one legal win under his belt. The federal charges in Phoenix when Jim and Tom Baker had harassed flight attendants had been dropped when it was determined that Tom, not Jim, was the primary instigator. But Jim wasn't going to be able to wriggle away from the Miami charges as easily. They had him right where they wanted him. And there were thousands of witnesses at the Miami concert. And even though many of them had dissenting opinions of what exactly happened that night, all it would take were a few brave souls to step up to the box and bear witness against the drunk, disorderly rabble-rouser who subsisted on fantasy. Jim took a shot and looked around the room. He had an idea. A way out. Fuck the reality of the Miami courtroom. Maybe, if he buried his head, made himself real scarce, made himself into a completely different person, then maybe the drama would end. Maybe they'd drop the case, forget all about Jim Morrison. He looked at Fogarty laughing at the side of the pool table with his brother Tom and the other guys in CCR, Stu Cook and Doug Clifford nearby. He saw denim, flannel, mustaches, cowboy hats, sunglasses, the whole fucking band looked like four guys in witness protection. Jim had an idea. He'd cobble together his own CCR character. He'd get inspiration from the four guys in the band. John's flannel, Tom's denim, Stu's glasses, Tom's hat. He'd shave his beard and leave the mustache. He would be the newest member of CCR. They'd call him Buck Harrington. That Buck Harrington man, dude could not sink a pocket shot and cutthroat, but he sure looked good holding the guitar. It would be like the old days with Rick and the Ravens. Jim would hold the guitar on stage and strum it, but they wouldn't plug him in. He would disappear. Forty and the guys would love the idea. They'd welcome him with open arms. Why not? Jim, uh, buck, could play in their traveling band. He'd get stuck in Lodi as often as needed as long as it meant he wouldn't have to face a jury in a Miami courtroom. And the Miami PD would eventually come to the penthouse suite at the Fountain Blue when Jim didn't show up to his hotel trial. They questioned the guys in CCR. They'd say that they heard that one of the last places Jim Morrison had been seen was with them, shooting shooting pool. Was Jim Morrison as shitty at shooting pool as they said he was? And the guys would all nervously laugh and say, yeah, for sure, dude couldn't sink a simple pocket shot to save his life. But they'd stop laughing, perhaps a little too quickly, and say that Jim had only hung out for a few hours and then was on his way. The cops would walk up to Buck last. They'd look him up and down, focus in on his curious mustache, his glasses, his hat. Don't we know you from somewhere? They'd ask him. They'd tap their pens against their pocket notebooks like they were running through a portfolio of faces and names in their heads, trying to place this Buck Harrington guy. Buck would just shake his head, shrug his shoulders. No idea, officers, he'd respond. I've never had a run-in with the law in my life the cops would eventually leave. And as soon as the penthouse suite door slammed shut, the guys in CCR would all look at each other and bust out laughing. Soon the national media would get hold of the story of Jim Morrison's disappearance, and it would be on the nightly news, front page news. The guys in the doors would be distraught, but they'd get over it. Honestly, they always found Jim to be more of a liability than not, so this would likely be a blessing in disguise. The charges in Miami would be dropped after a while because there was no longer a Jim Morrison to face them. He would disappear. He would beat reality. He closed his eyes. It would be easy. He opened his eyes and CCR were gone. He was no longer standing slouched next to a pool table in the penthouse suite at the Fountain Blue. He was sitting in a Miami courtroom where fate was about to balance out his good luck in Phoenix with some very bad news. He been in and out of this courtroom for over a month. The jury was shown photos of Jim giving Robbie's guitar head on stage in Miami. Photos of his hands down his pants. Photos of his belt unbuckled. Jim reclined back in his seat, scanned the room with his eyes, and slipped back into CCR fantasy. Over a month, eventually the jury deliberated. The jury came back. The jury had reached their verdict. The gavel came down that wood-on-wood crack of old-school authority. The sound of the man of an out-of-touch generation of a stifled bunch of conservatives who got off on harshing everyone's mellow. It echoed through the courtroom and snapped Jim out of a daydream. Jim Morrison had just lit his cigarette with the roach of his fading joint when he saw the breaking news report on TV. As soon as he saw the face of Jimi Hendrix in the caption 1942-1970, to he stubbed out the grass and stumbled forward to turn the volume up on the TV set. He already couldn't believe what he was seeing. But then, it was Florida TV. A guy could see a lot of unbelievable things on Florida TV. Jim had seen a lot of himself on Florida TV in recent months, more than he wanted. The square Floridians he had sought to escape from sought sanctuary from long ago, spoke to reporters in holier-than-thou tones, kids, teenagers, regressing into the dismissive ways of an older generation, distancing themselves from the incident. They couldn't even bring themselves to describe what had happened on that stage. It was just the incident. Local and state politicians took to their microphones condemn depravity, preach morality. When you're strange, people come out in the rain. The whole lot of them would have tarred and feathered Jim Morrison if they could have gotten away with it, dragged him out into the street, shot him, and aired it live on black and white TV sets throughout the nation. But now, it was time for something completely different. The press had a new rock star to fill their airtime, another musician that they could use to strike sweeping social poses about decency, the ABC anchor had interrupted regularly scheduled programming to make a special announcement. Jimi Hendrix was dead. The black and white TV flickered, the picture in focus, but the edges fuzzy and speckled. Jimi's frozen, smiling face, the anchor cold and composed, cut to the chase. Jimi Hendrix's experience is over. The acid rock musician died today at a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Fuck. Hendrix. Gone. Guy was light years beyond anyone else and only 27, just like Brian Jones the year before. Same ripe young age. That was strange. Jim tried to remember the last time he had seen Jimmy. It may have been Montreal when Jim tried to hijack Jimmy's stage for a second time. And Jimmy denied him. They all denied him Janice, Dennis Wilson, the whole fucking city of Miami. The prosecuting attorney used the conservative public's perception of Jim as an opportunity to ridicule him during cross-examination, get him to cop the lewd and lascivious behavior, like when he got on his knees on the Miami stage and pretended to give Robbie head while he soloed. But Jim was onto them. He was onto them all. Smug attorney, you have seen Robbie Krieger do that solo thousands of times, haven't you? Jim could be smug attorney. But you get down on your knees to study the intricate finger work. Jim. Well, he gets better all the time. He was quick-witted. He was smart. Not like everybody said that he was dumb. He could handle things. The Beatles said this kind of shit all the time at press conferences, and they get compared to the Marx Brothers. But not Jim. He was stepped over. It wasn't the way he wanted it. When 21-year-old photographer David Levine took the stand to talk about the underexposed photos he captured the night of the Miami show... The prosecuting attorney didn't think there were enough to work with. And he wasn't wrong. Levine had photos of Jim with his hands down his pants, and photos of Jim holding the lamb in his arms and laughing. But there was no smoking gunshot. Even Jim's lawyer knew that already. He had contacted Levine before the trial and bought a handful of photos to see what the fuss was about. Not much fuss from the looks of it. But the prosecuting attorney needed more from Levine. So when the photos didn't do the trick, He asked Levine about the masturbatory motions that Jim made on stage, asked him to demonstrate, for the jury, exactly what Jim did with his hand near his crotch. Levine clenched his fist and started to work his wrist down near his belt buckle. Lefty loosey, righty tighty, the motion was slow, it was subtle, and it was instantly identifiable. Levine blushed. A few of the jurors gasped, hands covered gaping mouths, one of them smirked. Levine kept making the motion and looked over at Jim. Jim raised his eyebrows up and down, nostrils flared and silently mouthed, ooh la la, in Levine's general direction. When the jury returned to the Dade County Courthouse, their verdict was as swift as the trial was sluggish. Guilty of open profanity, guilty of indecent exposure, both misdemeanors. On September 20th, 1970, the sentence came down. Six months, hard labor, $500 fine. Jim Morrison was given the right to appeal, which many could walk away from this harsh reality and try to come up with a new game plan. But things would just get even more complicated. He was only delaying the inevitable, pretending to think about an appeals process when life and fantasy would both get in the way. He would have himself convinced he wasn't going to jail and then he convinced himself that it wasn't his kid when Patricia confronted him one day to say that she was pregnant. There would be more fights, more outbursts, more insane attempts to build a new reality. And there would be blood. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club. All right, The 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Mundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis, and you're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club, and as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. rock a roll
2: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala.
0: We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying A, a podcast. podcast.
3: Welcome to Locatora Radio season nine. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen.